Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. I just want to say thank you for what's happening in this place. Man, it was like, I could hear people singing, a lot of women, not a lot of dudes. Dudes, you're letting me down. But yeah, man, it was, it, man, worship today, worship team, you guys killed it. You killed it. Um, as we, as we have been going along, as, if you're new here to Rest Church here, haven't been around with us, man, we're walking verse by verse, word by word through the book of Romans. And we've been, you know, getting insanely deep as we try to unpack the riches of what I would consider the gospel according to Paul. As we kind of understand the theology of what Paul's trying to say to this very particular church in Rome, who's kind of this hybrid church of, of both Jews and Gentiles who came together in the early formation of the church, and they're a force to be reckoned with. But Paul, later in his ministry, begins to write to this group, and he's fortifying them with what is a theological explanation of the gospel. And so what we see here is, is quite significant because it's taking the works of the, of, of the apostles, the works of the gospels, and it's bringing a little bit more meat to that bone. And, and today in particular, we're in um, week two of Justification 101, and I'm going to kind of recap some of the, excuse me, some of the things that I covered last week as we got into this very, very important text. And in case you have your Bible with you or you want to get your phone out, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting verse 21 through verse 26. And today we're going to set down on verses 25 and 26 in particular. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And last week, as I shared with you, some have said outside of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, in the accounts of Jesus, Romans is one of the most important books of the Bible. And others have went on to say that of the book of Romans, this passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, is the most important section of Romans. Um, on this passage, I want to offer you uh, a couple things that some pastors and theologians have said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the reason we are here today um, in, in many aspects said this about um, this particular passage. The chief point and the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. Leon Morris says, it is possibly the most important single paragraph 
ever written. Mike Bird says, it is the epicenter of Paul's gospel. This particular passage in Romans is so important because what we see here is mega themes of the faith. We see kind of the pillars of the Christian faith holding up everything in Christendom here, such as things like justification, redemption, propitiation, grace, faith. We see all of these things intertwined in this little section. And as I said to you last week, if you're a person who, who uh, doesn't understand those words, we will unpack those words as we go. I, I won't leave you out in the cold. We, we will try to make our best effort together to understand what's going on. This particular passage in Romans, um, we, we covered last week a couple different things. We saw that all of us, say all, all of us are lost hopeless and spiritually dead every one of us coming out of our mother's womb are born spiritually dead we saw that paul said in romans chapter 3 verse 23 for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of god and and i inserted i said to you i wish paul in in the greek would have used a little bit deeper language because in the english when it translates it says that we fall short and the reality of the gospel is is we don't just fall short and as we discussed we said we don't just fall short of the finish line we never even start the race we never even start the race. We saw that we're all saved by faith alone, by grace alone, on the works, on the basis of Christ alone, right? When it comes to faith alone, what we understand it is, is not faith that saves us. It's not even faith in God that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, Because there's many folks who would submit to a deity, that would submit to, to Krishna or submit to Buddha, who would say, I believe in God or I believe in a higher power. But that, but that isn't the saving work of the gospel. It requires us to submit to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth as Lord for us to have that redemption. And what we also discuss is faith is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. The cause of your salvation is the redemptive work that Jesus did on the cross. And so we have this justification that's brought about. And maybe, maybe you're new here and you weren't here last week and you're like, what is justification? Simply it's the process of being justified. Justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which that he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Before we move on, I opened up Second Corinthians 5.21 where we talked about he that knew no sin, Jesus, became sin. He, at the cross, he put on our sin that we, each one of us who know Jesus as Lord, might become the righteousness of God. And the second part of justification declares us to be righteous in his sight. If you believe in Jesus as Lord, if you have professed your faith in Jesus, I want to tell you this today, you are righteous in his sight. 
You are no longer seen as this stricken sinner. You are no longer seen as an alien outside of the, of the family of God. And that's something, a cause to be celebratory about, is we have been saved by his redeeming work. And so before we get into the text this morning, I want us to read the text, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Church, let's pray and then we will be on our way. Father, Lord, we come to you today and we ask, God, that you would meet us here at your table. That as we break open the bread of life, as we begin to, to, to understand what you're, what you're trying to unfold before us from this text from Paul, God, may we be encouraged. May we be admonished. May we give you permission to reproof and to rebuke us. Lord, I pray that today you would bring salvation to this place, that through this text that the lost and the hopeless would find hope, that they would know that there is a Father in heaven who stands waiting and willing through the blood of his Son. Lord, move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 25 is where we're going to pick up today. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This whom, this is Jesus speaking. If we were to go back to verse 24, this is Jesus whom Paul speaking about. God the Father has put forward Jesus as a propitiation. As we move out of verse 24 into verse 25, the focus is gonna shift from the human redemption of God's justifying work to God's initiative at doing that redemptive work. Specifically, Paul now unfolds the nature of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, showing us that this redemption takes place at the will and at the initiative of God the Father. While the persons of God the Father and Jesus the Son must be kept separate when we look at the Trinity, when we understand the Godhead, we, we have these three co-eternal persons existing in unison, and, and we have to understand that they function together as one, but yet in the redemptive story, it is a serious error to believe that while they are separate, that there is conflicting wills happening at the cross, that there is 
conflicting wills happening in our salvation. What do I mean by that? We don't have a grumpy old father God who's punishing his son and sending him to the cross as some sort of cosmic child abuse. At the cross, there is no cosmic child abuse. Jesus willingly goes to the cross on our behalf. While it was from the garden, from the time that Adam and Eve sinned, and and the prophecy first happens that he would send forth his seed to smash the head of the serpent. From the beginning, Jesus has been plan A number one. Jesus did not go begrudgingly. He went willingly for each and every one of us. He was not placating to the Father's will. He was doing the will of his Father because he loved us and he loved the Father. And so, so what, do we, what do we see here when we see this word propitiation? What is the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us? Here it is, if we were to break the Trinity up together and kind of understand from a God the Father aspect and from Jesus the Son aspect, what do we have? We see God the Father puts forward Jesus to save us from himself for himself. I want, you to, I want you to hear that. What is God the Father doing? He is putting forth Jesus to save us from himself for himself. And, and then when we look at Jesus the Son, we see that Jesus willingly accepts the position on behalf of humanity to save us from God the Father for the glory of God the Father. So what, what, what is propitiation? The word in the Greek, hilostadion, is a phrase. And this phrase, as you can see, us um, pastors, all except for A.B., he, whatever, he has to do his own thing all the time. But um, Adam thought it would be cool to buy me a shirt for this sermon, because in case you haven't been around, I use propitiation like every week. Yeah, right, right, right. And it just so happens that today is that text. And so Adam was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order Cody a shirt. And, and he got on there and it was like, a, I think it was five shirts. We get five shirts. And so we, we bought five shirts and uh, the four pastors and somehow Ted. Um, yeah, yeah. Ted got included in that mix. But yeah. Um, so what is propitiation? What, what, what are we saying when we say Propitiation. It is averting the perfect wrath of God by offering the perfect gift of God. And if I was to make it very simple, it's the appeasement or the satisfaction of the wrath of God. It's averting the perfect wrath of God because make no mistake about it, even God in his anger is still perfect. Even God in his, desi- his divine pursuit of justice is perfect. And was averted by the perfect gift of God, the Son of God. And, and much has been written and, and much, much conflict has been um, um, from this particular passage, especially in the 1500s around the time of the Reformation. And, and, and it really comes down to a, a couple different things. 
In, in the NIV, NIV this, word, this Greek word, hilostadion, um, what, what you might see if you're reading from an NIV Bible today is the sacrifice of atonement. And the King James and the ESV and the NASB, you're going to see words like propitiation. But like if you're reading a new revised standard version or something like that, you're going to see the word expiation in the English but that's because the, the, the translators, they kind of want to avoid, for some reason, the real meaning of what Paul is saying here. If your Bible says expiation today, I want to tell you that it, that it falls short of what Paul's trying to convey. Because expiation means the wiping away of wrongdoing. And, and, and I'm not saying that that is completely incorrect. Because what propitiation does is propitiation takes expiation and it raises the standard even more. Propitiation includes expiation, the wiping away of wrongdoing, but it's more than that. It's more than expiation. It is the turning away of God's wrath. It's not a single moment of wiping away of sins, but is a forward projection that for all time, those who are under his propitiation are deemed as righteous. You're more than just declared forgiven, you are declared righteous. It means that God's wrath is turned away from us who deserve it by the provision of the one who takes our place, and that is God himself, Jesus. So I want you to think about it this way. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. I want you to think about um, this picture of water over here. All of this water is, is the wrath of God. It's all of the wrath of God that's stored up. And, and I want to tell you this illustration falls it, it, it falls flat on its face in comparison to the reality of the depths of God's wrath. But at the cross, God the Father pours out all of his wrath on Jesus the Son. And I mean he pours out every single bit of his wrath for those who would confess Jesus as Lord. And here he is. He doesn't leave a single drop. Not one drop of his wrath is left for anyone who would confess him as Lord, for anyone who would put their faith in him. That's what we mean when we say propitiation is it is empty. The well of his wrath against his children is empty. The father's plan... And the son's willing sacrifice, he did not suffer because he had to, but because the father loved us and because he loved the father. He could have turned aside, as Mark 14 tells us, but he didn't. And maybe, maybe you're like, but why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't he just pass over these sins? Why couldn't he just not make Jesus go to the cross? Why was it so necessary for him to go to the cross? That would have been a violation of God's character and his word. Think about it this way. If God had forgiven us by becoming indifferent to sin, 
then he would hardly be the loving father to the victims of sin. It would give us no assurance for the future. And it would make God deeply compromised within his character. God should, must, and will judge us. The wonder is that he judged us in the person of his son. His son took our place. He took our place. God does not set his justice aside. He turns it on himself, church. I want you to think about that. God the Father did not set his justice aside at the cross. No, he turned it upon himself. The cross does not represent a compromise between God's wrath and God's love. It isn't a suggestion that he is halfway satisfied each. Rather, it satisfies each fully in the very same action. On this particular topic, Tim Keller says this, on the cross, the wrath and love of God were both vindicated, both demonstrated, and both expressed perfectly. They both shine out and are utterly fulfilled. Coming back to verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. Paul has said that we are justified our record has been cleansed because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He has became our propitiation so that through faith we can receive the grace of God. This unmerited favor, this unmerited, undeserved forgiveness. We discussed this a little last week. We did nothing. We brought nothing to the party. We brought ashes. We came with empty hands. And he gave us life back. I want to drive into this topic of faith that we see here. To be received by faith deeper than I did last week. The faith in this particular instance is a saving faith. A saving faith. This isn't your run-of-the-mill, I believe in God faith. And as I pointed out last week, even the demons have dead faith. We see in James chapter 2, verse 19, you know, you know, James is writing and he basically says, you believe, in, um, you believe in God. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. And so it, it requires more of us than just simple faith, just simple dead faith to believe. So what is, what is Paul getting at here in this particular faith that he keeps bringing up over and over? It, it's critical that we understand this because the picture that we get in Matthew chapter 7 is all these folks are coming to Jesus and they're saying, they're saying you, you know, Father, I, I did all these things in you. I, I believed in you. They thought they were followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I've never known you. So there is this clear distinction between a dead faith and a living faith. There's this, clean, this clear distinction between, hey, I believe in God and I am a servant of God. I am living a life of death in surrender to God. There is a distinct difference that we have to parse out here. A saving faith is a living faith. 
One that inevitably and immediately yields to the fruit of righteousness, meaning that a saving faith brings about contrition that leads to repentance. Is everybody tracking with me here? It's, we can't just say, oh, I, I believe and, you know, I'm going to keep doing me and, you know, I got, I got, my, I got my, uh, my insurance for my afterlife sealed up. No, 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 no. It is a faith, a living faith that leads to contrition that drives us to repentance. I, I, can't, I can't explain this enough to you. Just because you walk down the aisle and you talk to some preacher and you, you repeated the ABCs of the faith, that doesn't make you saved. That doesn't give you eternal life. Faith without repentance is nothing. True living faith drives us to contrition that leads us to repentance. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. A faith without any yield of righteousness is not true faith. Our faith should never be alone. And the sad reality is, is in the modern church, in too many instances, what we call saving faith in the church has been boiled down to nothing more than an intellectual endeavor. Mere knowledge and belief. And John Calvin says this about this mere knowledge and believing you're there. He says mere knowledge can no more connect a man with God than the sight of the sun can carry him to heaven. Saving faith is a multi-stranded faith, if you will. What, what do I mean by that? Saving faith, it, it believes that I have faith in Jesus, that I believe he was a real person who was perfect in every way, who died on a Roman cross, who was tried by Pontius Pilate, who was found guilty while yet never committing sin, who died at the Passover and on the third day was raised to newness of life and not only raised but in the sight of his companions was ascended into heaven and who made a promise that he will return again that's one strand of that faith is to believe in the historicity and the true gospel work of Jesus and then second to have life change occur to live in a pursuit to follow Jesus to make Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is not I who live but Christ who lives in me as your mantra your every day I will strive to run headlong in for the glory of God and I'm going to get on this more but man I, I want to ask you point blank right now do you got saving faith in your life is the Holy Spirit wrecking your world? Because that, that's the reality is when, when you are walking with Christ and you step outside of the will of God, you step countercultural to the word of God, it should wreck your life. It should put you at your knees. It should make you cry out to God and say, Abba, God, forgive me. How foolish have I been? Do you have that saving faith? Do you have a contrition that is driving you to a complete lifestyle of repentance? 
And so as we, as, as we, as we wrestle with what, what's being said here in, in, in kind of verse 25, part A, and this, this theological implication of the, the teaching of propitiation, how God puts forward his son to appease his wrath, the perfect sacrifice, so that we can have faith in him and have this salvation. What is the result of that? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're not a person who just loves to, loves to get in and read Puritan writings. And you're like, just give me the what do you mean by this? What is the result of embracing this biblical teaching on propitiation? It's this. We have peace with God. Number one, you can wake up with solace in knowing that because the wrath of God has been perfectly poured out and it is empty, church, it is empty, you can have peace with God. We are no longer enemies of God, as Romans 5 tells us. We are reconciled to God, to himself, as Romans 5 tells us. And the wrath of God has been turned away. And we have been brought into the family of God. The chasm that separated us from God the Father has now a bridge over top of it, and we are welcomed home. Here's the good news, Christian. You will never have to live a day in the fear of the Father's wrath because it is empty. You don't have to fear his wrath anymore because he poured it out on his son. In salvation, God declares unrighteous people righteous through faith in Christ's atoning work. Jesus bore your punishment already. Our worst days, even in our worst days, even when we fall on our face, even when we mess up royally, we don't run into the present and, and God the Father say, get out. No, Because his wrath has been poured out when we mess up and we run into the presence. He says, come home, my child. Because as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, we have put on his righteousness. He no longer sees us for our filthy rags that we are. He sees us through the redeeming work of his son. And so have peace. Live in the peace. Live in the shalom, the wholeness that God brings through salvation. Verse 25, the second part. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Paul's understanding at this point in his life at the full weight of the gospel shows here. He shows that God the Father was patient with humanity That he was passing over former sins prior to the cross. Meaning that God had left these sins of the patriarchs unpunished. If God had truly punished the sins committed by the Old Testament people, they would have been gone. There would have been nothing more that was needed to be done. But it's clear here, in fact, what Paul's implying is that he had not completely punished these sins the payment church was deferred the payment was deferred until the cross and on the cross God the father places upon Jesus the sins of all of the past the sins of that generation that Jesus lived in and the sins of every future generation of humanity that would come 
It shows us that the sacrifices and the rituals of the Old Testament were always placeholders pointing to Christ. They did not really pay the eternal debts needed to free us of our sin. So as we come into verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. At the cross, God both upholds his justice, his his just character, and accepts an inner righteousness before him. His righteousness is vindicated, and and believing sinners are justified. Paul's point here is that God can maintain his righteous character even while he acts to justify unrighteous people who would put their faith in him. He does this through Jesus' propitiary sacrifice. He provides full satisfaction of the demands of God's impartial, unwavering justice. On this particular topic, Tim Keller says this, God is both the judge who cares enough about the world to set standards and hold us accountable to them, and the justifier who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. He is a father worth having. This is the part I want you to hear. He is a father worth having, and he is a father we can have. The cross is where graciously and liberally we see that he is the just and the one who justifies, who have faith in him. In Romans 3, we see the gospel laid bare before us. We see it opened up. And it shows us Jesus occupies a unique position, being the only one who could save sinners and satisfy the wrath of God. Just and justifier means Jesus represents us as he takes the punishment. And he represents God in giving us perfect righteousness. I want you to see that, and that phrase should come up here because the just and justifier sometimes is hard to understand. Just and justifier means Jesus represents us as he takes our punishment. And he represents God in giving us perfect righteousness. Church, God is both the judge and the deliverer. He pardons and he punishes. And so, as we close in on this verse, I want you to to think about what he's getting at. He's pardoning and punishing of the one who has faith in Jesus. It all comes down to that. It's this living faith as part of your life. I mean, we can can split open the Greek and the Hebrew. We can dive headlong in theology textbooks. We can read Swindoll and Sook. We can read the early church fathers back to the patristics. We can, we can do all of these things and they matter not if we don't have saving faith. They matter not 
if you don't have saving faith. I don't care if you're a deacon in this church. I don't care if you served as a pastor before. If you don't have saving faith as part of your life, don't leave this place. And I know you've heard preachers say this all the time. You've been to church and you've probably heard a preacher say, don't you walk out, you don't know what a bus... I'm not telling you this to scare you. I'm not telling you this, but the reality of, of what this passage tells us, what the reality of it's opening up is that we have a good, good father who is worthy to be worshiped, who is worthy to serve, who is both the just and the justifier. He didn't point his wrath at you and at me. He pointed it at himself. He took our place. He paid our price. Amen. He is a God worth serving. Have you stepped into living faith? Or are you still, and I hate to put it this way, but this is the reality of it. Are you still like the demons cruising by on intellectual faith? A dead faith. Maybe you, you come into this place And you're like, I, I have nothing to offer him. My life is broken. My world is messed up. I have nothing to offer him. I want to tell you, you're in the perfect place. And, and, and maybe you're in the opposite place where you're tricking yourself. And you're like, I got it together. Why do I need God? Because there will come a day. There will come a moment when it starts to unravel. And the gospel of Jesus is the only peace that surpasses understanding. The gospel of Jesus is the only anchor in a storm. And so if you come into this place today, I want to tell you this. This is a quote from A.W. Tozer. The only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness we can ever have is his. So when I ask you point blank, is there evidence of contrition and repentance in your life? Will you walk into his righteousness today by placing your faith in him? Will you make a profession of faith today to follow Jesus? Normally, at this point, I would ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I'm not going to today. Today, I'm going to ask you to be bold. Because the early church, when they made professions of faith, it was a matter of life and death. When they were baptized, it was a matter of life and death. While today there's no matter of life or death attached to you making a profession of faith, I want to ask you point blank, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you confessed him as Lord of your life? If you haven't, there's no better day than today. There's no better day than Sunday 
August the 13th, 2023. And so if that's you today and you say, today, Pastor, I feel the Holy Spirit's calling. I know that I have not walked in unison with him. I know I have not followed him. I I know that my life is apart from him. And today I need to, for the first time, make a profession of faith. I need to come before the Father and confess my sins. I need to come before the Father and confess that I believe that he is the King of kings. I believe that he is the Lord of lords, that he has paid my penalty. And, And today you feel that contrition that's gonna lead to repentance. I'm actually be really crazy bold. And man, back in the days, we used to do this a lot at rest. And man, it, it, it used to blow my mind when pe- people would stand up in a room like this in the early days, a much smaller room because it was much humbler beginnings. But I remember that when people would do that, the church would erupt in absolute praise. And we used to say that we would do it because that's what we knew that the angels in heaven were doing. They were rejoicing over the lost, the, po- the person who had crossed over from death into life. And so I want to tell you that that's going to happen today, right, church? That's going to happen today. And you say today, I need to surrender. I need to confess Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. I need to make a profession of faith. And I, I know that I have that contrition. I have been walking in alienation from God. And today I want to step into the life of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to count of three to be bold and just stand to your feet. Just stand to your feet. We're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna come. Siri didn't get it, but that's okay. We're going to come to you and we're we're going to help you walk through what does that mean today? Because we want to know that we know that we know that we know and that you know that you know that you know that you know that God has made a way for you. And so one, God loves you. Two, do not be afraid. Be mighty, be bold, be courageous. Three, if today you say, I need Jesus, just stand to your feet right now. Amen. Church, as we come to the time of close, I want you to remember that we are not enemies with God anymore. We have a peace with God. And so as we sing, Jesus paid it all, man, I expect a congregation to declare it. Because the perfect wrath of God was appeased by the perfect sacrifice of God. Let's pray.